it's kind of crazy because since everything's canceled in Omaha, all the schools have now been, or in all of Nebraska, they've all been canceled till uh, May 31st. So my, my quiet recording space happens to be my master bedroom closet instead of my nice studio in my, in my office. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. But you do what you got to do. Crazy times. I'm just texting. Yeah. Based on that, I was just I could hear my kids up and they're doing their homeschool, and I could hear lots of excitement. And I said, Jane, please keep them quiet because <laughs> I'm down in the office, but you know, yeah, you could hear anything from this podcast, but that just makes it human. Yes, that's right. Yeah, same thing with me. We could have kids beating down the door in a few minutes, yeah. and <laughs> it'll just make it more fun. Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. John Nolan, who has done really pivotal research for the last 20 years on carotenoids and macular degeneration. And we discussed a lot of that research and we discussed kind of his philosophy and, and what the research kind of helps him understand about macular function and uh, how we can best manage our patients with macular degeneration as well as before macular degeneration when we're talking about visual dysfunction. And so uh, it was a great conversation. It was a lot of fun to talk to him. Uh, and please enjoy our conversation. As always, please subscribe to the podcast. Give us a five-star review. Support those who support us. One of the things that it took me a while to wrap my mind around was the need for utilizing a silicone hydrogel lens for my patients who wear daily contact lenses. Nearly all of my patients who wear a frequent replacement lens wear a silicone hydrogel material. However, until a few years ago, very few of my one-day lens prescriptions were for a silicone hydrogel. Part of this was the options we had available, and part of it was cost. At least my perception of the cost. What I was forgetting is that patients wearing a one-day lens are still wearing their lenses for 14 to 16 hours, and they would benefit from a more oxygen permeable lens. You may have the perception, as I did, that a one-day lens made with silicon hydrogel material are going to be too costly for our patients. However, studies show that patients want us to offer them the healthiest options regardless of price. I make it simple to the patient. I explain why I'm prescribing a particular lens based on their complaints or based on what I'm seeing clinically. It sounds like this. Bob, you're wearing a contact lens for most of your day, and in the past, we didn't have as many options for putting you in a daily lens that also allows for optimal oxygen transmission. We now have an option that does this, and is as cost-effective as older lenses that you're in. I would love to see how this lens feels to you and looks on your eyes. Done. That's the conversation, and I haven't had one patient who has not wanted to try it. Clarity One Day is an affordable silicone hydrogel lens our patients are thankful we discussed with them. Check out the show links for references and see for yourself how to move beyond cost and focus on what's best for our patients. Well, I, and I think, so before we get to that, I just, I don't get to speak to many people that are not in the United States. So tell me how, how has, how has all this COVID-19 stuff impacted you all in Ireland and, and how has it changed the way you're doing things day to day? Yeah, so it's, it's, so at a, at a generic level, it's, it's been since the Second World War the biggest impact that we've had um, as a people. And, um, you know, it reminds me a lot about when I kind of naively heard about the recession in 2007, 2008. Mm. I didn't really comprehend what a recession was. I remember a famous guy on the radio speaking that, oh, we have a recession. And I was driving to my research lab thinking, oh, what, what's that? <laughs> um, and, and then I found out, just like everybody else. Um, this has been, this is 
feels like it's almost like a bad dream that just doesn't go away. Um, and I mean that um, with all sincerity um, because it's, it's affecting the, the kind of the health piece. Um, obviously, that's the primary. Are people going to be okay? Are our parents going to be okay? Um, and then obviously the economical piece is just massive and, and how that's hit even a, an academic university like the university I work in and, and the research funds and the people we employ and the projects we run and our access to patients and our access to the interventions that we use and our access to the chemicals we need to do our analysis. Mm. It's just, it just mind-blowing in terms of um, the, the potential insults this has had on society. You know, we're a small population. You know, we're four and a half million people. I think we're, we're over 50 people now that have, have um, you know, unfortunately died because of this. Um, we've several thousand people with it. So like we're very mm-hmm. small. We're quite an interesting project actually because we're such an island. <laughs> Literally when we close our borders, we can, you know, stop what's going on. So we've been able to do that. Our government, and it's the first time I had this kind of address to the nation event where I sat on the couch with my wife and uh, got quite emotional to hear our president and our Taoiseach speak and tell us that, look, this is really serious and this is what we need to do to get through this. But ultimately with, you know, an intention of hope and an intention that we will get through this um, and we have to take short-term pain for long-term gain. So, yeah, as a, as a human being, as a father, as a husband, as a director of a research centre, this has been traumatic. But in a funny way, it's also been kind of rewarding to see how we've been able to, even in a short period of time, you know, work with our peers, work with our colleagues, you know, look at what we're doing now. I mean, yeah. we, we can continue to, to be good at what we do and we can continue to get through this. And, and I do believe that when we get through this, we will learn a lot about ourselves. We will learn a lot about our health systems and about our governments. And I think that we will probably live in a very different world where we, where we behave a little different, hopefully a lot better, and where we have, I, I think a lot of people will figure out how to appreciate family more. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, and I, I'd even put myself in that category. The most important thing in my life is my family. But, you know, um, having to kind of adjust with my family as a collective, the way I've been able to do everything from my one-year-old to my you know, five-year-old to my wife, it's, it's been quite phenomenal how we've been able to do that. So yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. How do you feel? No, I think, I think you're right. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, kind of things that are swirling around. I think the, I think we will be better on the back end of this. I think the, um, the adjustments that people make in the short term will show them how they can do things better in the long term. Um, you know, from a profession, you know, from an optometric profession standpoint, you know, right now it's, it's really challenging. I mean, it's really challenging for, for how people are managing their practices and their, um, their employees. I'm sure it's just the same as, as you have. And, and you're sitting here with, with really hard decisions to make. And what I think is, has been refreshing is that by, by not making snap decisions, some of the decisions have just been kind of, unveiled is becoming very clear that you have to make as, as a business owner. And um, so I guess my point is, is that I've seen some people making these really quick decisions. And, um, and I think that they weren't necessarily the wrong decision. It's just that what I've learned in a lot of this is that you can, those decisions don't seem as, 
irrational. They don't seem as um, crazy when, because time sort of lifts and makes it, makes it clear. And, and really that's, you know, I'm just reflecting on some conversations I've had over the last couple of days that have kind of illustrated to me some of the clarity, but you're right. I mean, it starts to, you know, the, the things that I've been kind of questioning of you just, even my family, you know, on the one hand, a lot of the things that we have our kids do with different activities and uh, it seems so insignificant now, you know, it's, it's like, and then, and then if this goes on long enough, you start to wonder if people aren't, I don't know how it's like in, in Ireland, but you know, I got kids on almost every night of the week, typically, you know, I'm, I'm taking, I've got eight kids, so I'm taking wow. one to, you know, I'm taking one to dance one to, and then one of us is going another direction to take them to uh, trampoline and tumbling another yeah. direction to go to soccer. And so like we are passing each other, you know, and one of the great parts about all this, if there is any great parts yeah. is that that's all done, right? That's done for the foreseeable future. And it's really nice. You know, it's really I nice. Totally, I totally agree. And I do think the pace at which we go back to that world, um, it'll be different. I think we, we may be more selective. Um, and I, I wonder, was it just a, a kind of a keeping up? There was an element of keeping up with the job. At one level, our kids like to do trampoline and gym and, and all of these things. And we should try and support them to kind of excel in those areas. But, you know, I wonder where, where there are elements of that where mom and dad felt, oh, you know, they're doing it, so we should be doing it. And, you know, I, I don't, for example, even with school, I actually can see my daughter developing really well over the last two weeks. And uh, so even at that something as significant as school, which of course they should be at school, we can do a lot as parents, even in a busy world with responsibilities. And, you know, I had this very interesting discussion with a friend who just kind of like what we're saying here was, wow, this is kind of nice to have this type of time with your family. And I couldn't disagree, but what I needed to get to, to be honest, for selfish perspective was I needed to sort out the trauma in my brain, which was my, my research enterprise and all the people that, you know, that were kind of um, dependent upon this staying alive and being successful. And, and once we worked our way through that, and it didn't all, it wasn't all successful though, you know, there has been casualties. Um, but landing where we've landed, now I'm kind of getting that brain space where I'm enjoying that other piece more. And yeah. It's going to be amazing to see, like, do we go back to those activities at the pace and to the extreme and, and what's the right thing to do? <laughs> It'll be an interesting future. Yeah, it will be for sure. So let, let me, let me think about back, kind of take me back to um, yeah. how does somebody who does not go to optometry school or to medical school and then an ophthalmology residency, how do you stumble on the research that, that you do? And maybe stumble is not the right word, but, how did you come upon this as kind of your life's work as saying, uh, one, I want to do research on eyes. Two, I want to do research on macular degeneration. Maybe it's th this isn't the right order. And three, I want to do ma research on supplementation for prolonging macular degeneration or, or yeah. preventing it from, from hitting different levels and, and onsets. So yeah. I guess take me through that. Yeah, of course. What, what a great question. And, and I think, you know, it starts, it starts with a um, situation that, I have to say I'm a biochemist and, you know, so why am I working in vision? Why am I working in macular degeneration? Um, and the, the point is, you know, it was a little bit of naivety that landed me there. 
you know, when, when I finished my primary degree, which, which was um, applied biology with chemistry and biochemistry, um, I kind of didn't really even know what research was um, and or what a postdoc was or what a PhD was. Mm-hmm. And, but I knew, that, I knew that I had a lot to do. I knew I had a lot of opportunity to, to try and, you know, stay in ac- academia because what, what was interesting is, and I'll go back a little further, was I have to be honest that in school I was very sporty and I wasn't very academic. I was a very good soccer player and, and, a, and a national sport called hurling. And I really thought that my future was in this, mm. the kind of sporting world because that was my passion. And, um, you know, school and, and, and studies weren't, weren't uh, fundamentally the most important thing in my life. Now, I was honest about it. I worked hard at it, but I never really got school. And I didn't excel at all. And it wasn't until I went to university that I figured out, you know, that I, and I decided to do science because I wanted to kind of be in that area. But when I was in university, I, I discovered that, you know, be, being good at something remarkably required a, a, a key understanding of that topic. So I started to understand science and chemistry and biology. And, um, and then I started to kind of, really achieve and, and, and get distinctions in my qualifications. So I got really good at, at, at education. And, and it was simply that I had to break things down to such a fundamental level of knowledge that I could build it back up very quickly. That was my methodology. Mm. And the difference between, between that and what I did in school, when I was in school, it was learn, 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 you know, learn off. And I didn't understand it. So I wasn't very good at learning things off. And to this day, if you gave me a speech to read in front of you or in front of an audience, I would have great, great difficulty with that. Mm. But if I understand my topic, I will stand and talk to you all day long and hopefully, you know, explain it very clearly. So I suppose the first piece in this equation for John Nolan was that I, I, I figured out that I was good at science fundamentally. And when I, basically what happened was there was a, a vitreoretinal retinal surgeon who just moved from Manchester, UK, to Ireland where he was working in the local regional hospital. And basically he um, had done a, a thesis on uh, macular pigment, an MD thesis mm-hmm. as part of the training. And he, as a vitreoretinal surgeon, someone that looked at the retina all day long, really kind of was fascinated by this pigment in the back of the eye. This, this guy is a professor, Stephen Beatty. And um, so long story short, Stephen Beatty um, wanted to kind of continue this uh, research opportunity. And, but obviously he was moving into a situation where he was becoming a, bu- a busy surgeon. And mm-hmm. So he needed to find a researcher. So he, it, he um, obtained funds from a, a charity in Ireland called Fighting Blindness Ireland, um, which is very interesting. Actually, the, the funds for that project came from a very famous lady called Maya Doherty, who was the um, um, developer of the Riverdance which you will have heard of. And her interest in this whole thing is her mother had the disease age-related macular degeneration. Mm. So she made funds available to, to um, Fighting Blindness Ireland and the University Waterford Institute of Technology here um, basically facilitated this research program. And I went to an interview and I basically did a very good interview. Obviously, I got the job and that was where my PhD began. So my starting point in terms of vision macular degeneration and all of that was zero hmm. this was this is like in 2000 you know, 2000 2001 i started and that was when you were interviewing for your phd program that was for the phd program okay 
So that's still pretty early because you had that, you had, you, you had a, it kind of, um, your whole process started. It wasn't like you were a biochemist doing something else. And then, <laughs> and then you were, you know, thrust into macular degeneration. It was part of your kind oh, of yeah. training and thesis training. and, Absolutely. And nutrition, I was always, I was always very interested in nutrition and it, I want to kind of home in on a point you mentioned and that is, you know, supplementation. Mm -hmm. You know, I have to say that when I began all of this, my, my, the first thing that um, I, I went to was I wanted to use good nutrition as, as a way to help with our research question. Um, and I'll come back to that in a while because the point I'm making is at the beginning, I was very anti-supplementation. Right. That was just something the Americans did, you know, <laughs> it wasn't something that I was going to be part of, but I'll explain how we've evolved to that because it's quite interesting, but to kind of scale up the story to, to get to where I am now, and then we can maybe home back in. Sure. Um, you know, basically I did a very successful PhD. I, 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 my research question was connecting risk factors for age-related macular degeneration with nutritional profiling, and we even set up the first measurement of this pigment in the back of the eye in collaboration with um, London City um, University, um, Professor John Malario, and he created a psychophysical test with me where we used this head flicker photometry, the psychophysics, mm -hmm. to measure this pigment. And I basically did this in a random sample of a thousand people in Ireland. And then what we did was we characterized all the people in terms of their risk factor for developing macular degeneration. So these were healthy individuals that didn't have retinal disease or macular degeneration, but obviously they fit into some type of risk factor. So we were able to look at all the cigarette smokers or all the people that had a confirmed family history of macular degeneration because we had this large sample. And what we did then was um, we found that um, we were able to, to basically measure the pigment in these people and connect in that those that had the established risk factors for macular degeneration, the smoking, the family history, um, and the older people had much lower levels of these nutritional pigments in the back of the eye. And this was the first time that we had a kind of a proof of concept that, you know, this pigment in the back of the eye is in some way connected to the disease via the risk factors, macular degeneration. And on the back of that massive experiment, which I did in Ireland as part of my PhD program, we published many key papers and we got to know the field of research in this area. Um, people like Max Notterly and Paul Bernstein and, um, you know, Randy Hammond and all these people that had been publishing um, scientists. These are all scientists like me, not, not optometrists. Mm -hmm. um, but what happened then was I went, I actually applied for a scholarship in the US where I went to work with Professor Max Notterly, who was one of the world leaders, the pioneer of our field. And um, Max did most of his work with nutrition of the eye with primates, uh, macaques. And, you know, I got to go and work with him. And I got to run a human study with Max. And, and um, at that time, there was a professor there called Professor Jim Stringham, who I got to mm -hmm. work with. Jim is an excellent vision scientist. And so we, we, did, we did some trials and I profiled them. Um, at that time, OCT had just come, come mm -hmm. to, to the party. And I had one of the first OCTs in America where we were able to look at retinal architecture and the structure of the retina and how that was connected to this pigment. So we were, we were adding to our knowledge base the whole time. Um, but then as part of this program, this Fulbright scholarship, my idea was to come back to Ireland and take kind of my, the nucleus of my research question and my small little lab and create something kind of very special. And that was my vision. All, all back then, that was my vision. And 
it was an unbelievable vision, you know, maybe, maybe a ridiculous one, but we, we, you know, the conclusion is we realized that we now have a center of excellence that has government approval to just study carotenoids and just study macular pigments. But what I knew, Chris, was that I knew what I was good at was, was running the human clinical studies. But what I wanted to be able to do was to be able to do the measurements of the carotenoids um, when I'm looking at, say, for example, changing someone's diet or looking at a patient with macular degeneration. I wanted to be able to, in our research facility, to do the functional measurements. So we had to figure out how to measure vision at a mm-hmm. super sensitive level. Mm-hmm. You know, this is where things like you know, uh, contrast sensitivities and photostress recovery and you know much more sophisticated assessments of vision than what ophthalmology or even what optometry does you know and this is one of the messages from our research is that you know we can't stay in a world of acuities because it's only given us nine percent of the story of vision mm-hmm. in, in short so when it, so therefore if my research question is that if we optimize these nutrients do they have an effect um you know we need to be doing our measurements correctly we need right. to have sensitive enough methods so what i did was and with a lot of good people and a lot of good support, I was able to build up an infrastructure of, of, of testing equipment within our clinical trials laboratory, but also people that were, were super good at doing those measurements. So, and this is where optometry came in, because the best people to work with vision, in my view, are optometrists. That's what you do. You know vision better than anyone. So I was very fortunate to get to work with a whole bunch of optometrists over the years who who basically at, at every project kind of improved and extended our capacity in terms of study and vision. This then done in collaboration with the likes of uh, Professor Stringham and so on. So that's, that, that's been good. But my area then is can I, the molecules I'm looking at, these three molecules, which we talk about maybe lutein, zeaxanthin, and mesozeaxanthin. You know, I was, the beginning of our question was, well, where do they come from? Mm-hmm. Are they safe? You know, first thing we need to do is do no harm, right? So yep. we have to figure all that stuff out. So once we, once we established that with good human clinical studies and clinical pathology assessment, we kind of knew that we were working with nutrients that were powerful and tapping into kind of research from the likes of Paul Bernstein, where they demonstrated the, the elegance of the antioxidant capacities of these three carotenoids. And um, we'll talk about that maybe again. But so we knew there was a, a concept that these pigments in the back of the eye which were deficient in people with macular degeneration, which were very low, by the way, in, in a diet of even mm-hmm. a healthy individual. Mm-hmm. And if we change that, can we change the pigment? Um, and does that matter? Yeah. So, so there's two main research questions. And, you know, so every study we do, we improve our capacity to address those, those research questions. And I spent about 10 years working with scientists and working with nutritional scientists and statisticians where we kept trying to, you know, um, enhance our research question with technology. And that's been the amazing thing about what's happened in the last decade is that the research I'm able to do now today is so superior to what I even did during my PhD because the technology is so superior. Mm-hmm. We have access to stuff now and methodology that we've never had access to. So, Putting all of that together and, and, and running all our human clinical studies, we were really able to develop a solid research question that had measurements and outcomes that were, were powered and planned and sophisticated to address the question of interest. And I suppose the, the big change in gears has been the, the movement from using these nutrients away just from the world of age-related macular regeneration to every patient. 
And I think it's important we talk about that in, in, in a bit because I really think that the industry has, 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 has got this kind of wrong insofar as, you know, when do we think about nutrition or lifestyle modification? We think about when a patient has a destroyed retina. Right. That's not the time to start thinking about this. It's important to think about it for that patient. And our studies show that when you do the right thing with nutrition and, and the macular carotenoids, um, we can help that patient, you know, kind of in the early to mid stage of the disease. And, um, but really, the, the explosion of data and the, and the validity of the data and the strength of the data is connected to when we look at what the studies from my center and those across the world have shown in terms of um, how we can help all our patients. Mm-hmm. And this is from the, the, the visual function hypothesis, which we can talk about as well. Well, so, so that, that's, it brings up an interesting point because I think you're right where you said the industry has gotten this wrong. And I, I do believe that. I think I'm saying that coming from a couple different stances. The first stance is, you know, I, my background is um, I, for a lot of years, I helped doctors and students prepare for their board examinations. And so everything I wanted to see was a prospective, randomized, double-blind, you yeah. know, uh, trial. And so anything that didn't meet that was, was automatically kind of dampened down pretty significantly. And then the other thing, as I speak across, across the whole country on this topic now, is I almost now have to preface so many of the things that I'm going to say w- with what you've said is that can we do something when we're healthy 30-year-olds or 40-year-olds where we don't have to, or even before that, where we don't have to wait until the retina is damaged. And some of those big studies that everybody cites, AREDS1, AREDS2, that they just don't get off of what those studies tell you to do is they, they can't wrap their minds around the fact that it's very difficult to get a, to answer every single question we might have with a large clinical study like that. And so I almost preface it by saying, I'll, I'll ask, you know, um, the audience, I'll say, how many of you would treat a patient uh, who has dry eye, at least consider the option of using a topical steroid for that? And, you know, almost every hand goes up. They know that inflammation is part of the cascade that comes along with dry eye. And, um, and so I said, where, and I'll always say, where is the clinical study, the large randomized placebo-controlled clinical trial that shows that's appropriate? And, and nobody, can, nobody can cite one because there isn't one. And, um, and so my point is then that if you can understand the pathophysiology and you understand different mechanisms for intervention, we might not have a, an answer to, you know, starting here at 30 and moving all the way down with a big study that spans 40 or 50 years. We don't have that. But do we have all these small pieces of the puzzle that logically allow us to make those other steps? And so kind of take me through that part of yeah, it. So, um, am so, I missing so, something? Am I, no, you're, you're, you're spot on. And, and it's, it's really important we talk about it because, you know, let, let's, let's, as you say, ARIDS. ARIDS was so important because it provided a proof of concept that we should be looking at nutrition and antioxidants in some way, shape, or form. But what people really need to understand and differentiate is that ARIDS is powered for morphology, for disease. And when you want to look at a disease, an age-related disease that is the result of being alive for 60 or 70 or 80 years, 
you need big numbers mm -hmm. and you need to have a strong effect. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in order to do that, you need lots of money to do that type of study. And that's why Arads has spent like 400 million of taxpayers' money yeah. on, a, on a research design that, quite frankly, while I'm very complimentary of it and grateful that it's happened, I'm also very critical. I can't believe that we got to Arids 2 and that we haven't used the three parts of the jigsaw, lutein, zeaxanthin, and mesozeaxanthin, because we had the data at that stage that yeah. there are three parts to this yeah. jigsaw. And I can't believe that in Arids 2 um, we didn't use or uh, do measures of, of, of visual function that were reflective of, you know, how the patient feels about their vision. Um, so, but, but accepting all of that and just defaulting to the morphology bit, you know, it was paired to look at morphology. ARIDS-1 had the effect, 26% risk reduction from intermediate to advanced AMD. ARIDS-2, remarkably, when they basically just threw more antioxidants on top of that in the form of carotenoids and omega, they actually, with the carotenoids, found a significantly additional benefit in risk reduction of progression of the disease. Um, but it's really important that, you know, that, that, that this industry, that optometry and eye care, understands that ARIDS was designed to look at, um, you know, disease and, in, and, and was so powered to do that. But what you said is so crucially important, and that is that we, can't, we have to move beyond ARIDS now because the technology has and the research studies have. And just because a study may have, say, 150 participants, that's powered to look at function. If it's powered to look at function, you don't need 5,000 people. Hmm. You need the right methodology. You need the right research question to show the effect. Now, when I teach statistics at my university now, and this whole question of, like, was the sample powered enough? Had you large enough? And a very good statistician that, that taught me statistics, you know, you know what he said to me, Chris? He said, well, how do you know if, if you have enough power? And he said, well, you cut down the tree. And I said, what does that mean? He said, well, your ax was sharp enough. So the point is, if you had an effect, if you're able to demonstrate an effect in your 100 or 150 or 200 people, that sample was perfectly big to demonstrate the importance of that research question hmm. because you showed the effect. As long as, you've, as long as you've controlled for other confounding variables within Absolutely. that population. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and I do think that whether it's powered for morphology or powered for function, and, and that's the point, what our studies do is we look at research questions that are connected to visual function or in, most recently cognitive function. So um, you still need that double blind placebo control you know, um, design in order to have a research question that stands up in order to have a research question that if it's replicated in the clinic or in a, by another research facility that you get the results. And, you know, and essentially what we did over the years was we, we you know, I spent 10 years working with lutein interventions and getting results where 25 to 30% of my, my participants were not getting any response, even at mm. a tissue level. Forget about function for a second. So I was giving them lutein all day long. I was measuring compliance and we weren't getting the results. And it was in, in about um, 2009 where I got access to um, mesozeaxanthin. And that was from, you know, there was a, a group in, in Mexico that um, were providing, a company called Industrial Organica, providing uh, lutein for the world, for supplement companies and for the egg industry and for the textile industry and so on. And um, they approached me about having access to, would I be interested to look at mesozeaxanthin? And quite frankly, I was very um, reluctant to look at mesozeaxanthin at that time because it was very much 
an unknown. Uh, Bone and Landrum had done some work on it. But, but then when I looked at the anatomy data of the macular pigments, I saw, wow, mesoziosantin is a massive player here. You know, this mountain-shaped pigment that we're all talking about. Mesoziosantin lives in the center of that mountain. And this is where the studies um, started to take off because we had done another 1,000-person study in Ireland where we demonstrated that there was about 12% of the population had this dip in their macular pigment. Mm. So instead of having a mountain-shaped profile, they had kind of like a volcano. And I hypothesized quite boldly in one of my scientific papers was that um, it's possible they're deficient in mesoziosantin. So I had, these, I had about 70 patients that had these dips that um, had consented to kind of come back to a clinical trial. And in that clinical trial, I sourced my material from Industrial Organica. And we basically had um, a high lutein intervention. It was 20 milligrams of lutein. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a, 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 a formula with, which was very high mesozeaxanthin. It was 17 milligrams of mesozeaxanthin. And then we had a formula that had the three carotenoids, the, um, t- the 10102 formula, the now commercially known MacuHealth. So we, we basically played those three formulations off each other in a human clinical study. And we found that when we gave the people with the dips in their pigment lutein, they left the experiment with dips in their pigment. So we couldn't fix the problem. But when we gave them the interventions that had mesozeaxanthin, we could remarkably rebuild that mountain. And very quickly, in fact, the response was very dynamic. So we then did a series of single-blind studies where we said, well, mesozeaxanthin seems to be an important part of this equation. So I said, let's have a look at how kind of the general population responds to that. And let's do some measures of vision. And and by then, our technology was allowing us to look at contrast sensitivities. And we were able to measure meso in the lab. We could control for it. And, you know, we were finding that we were improving contrast sensitivity in patients with age-related macular degeneration Hmm. at a phenomenal level. And so I had basically, long story short, at this stage, I had, this was about 2009, 2010, I had so much kind of pilot data, exploratory data, that I basically locked myself away for two years with all this data. And I wrote this grant for the European government. And um, Interior had no chance of winning this. This was like the, only the elite of the elite won uh, this type of um, research. It was called European Research Council Grant. It's, it's a very prestigious grant, the most prestigious grant anyone can apply for. But we applied for it. We won it. I ended up in a boardroom in Brussels in Europe where it was, uh, I felt terrified but exhilarated. I, it was like Jerry Maguire, you know, there was 10 people in the room. I had nine minutes to sell my research idea for 2.5 million euros. And um, we did that and remarkably we won the fund. And that was where we conducted the, the Crest studies, which ran from 2011 and we're still publishing data from Crest. It's been so valuable. But this was this double-blind placebo-controlled trial, um, and the formulation we used was the 10-10-2 formulation in that. But we had two groups of interest. We had the healthy group, so this was your weekend warriors, your sports people, your, your bus drivers, your train drivers, your military, your pilots. Um, and then we had the pa- patients with early-stage age-related macular degeneration. So we had two, two populations that we wanted to test here. In the first population, the healthy group, um, over 12 months, we, when we were able to demonstrate 100% of the pe- patients responded to the intervention. And not only did they respond to the intervention, our primary outcome measure, which was contrast sensitivity, was significantly enhanced. Mm. 
in the in the AMD trial, this was a very difficult experience, to be honest, because around that time, 2013, ARIDS 2 came out. Mm-hmm. So the Data Safety and Monitoring Committee basically said, it's unethical for me to have a placebo group there. Right. So what we did was we created a custom, a custom um, ARIDS formula, but, but very importantly, we had to have a low zinc group because we're not allowed to use 80 milligrams of zinc, which is the standard of care in the US, which is mm-hmm. remarkable how that's allowed because... That can be toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's a- interesting. It's interesting to me because the most commonly utilized a quote unquote a reds two formula mm-hmm. still contains eighty milligrams of zinc, even though a reds two didn't have didn't have eighty milligrams of zinc in it. So, so just maybe just a discussion on that. Arids two had a group that didn't have eighty milligrams. You're right, but there was a group in Arids two that had eighty milligrams of zinc. But what 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 they showed was that there was absolutely right. no difference in result between those who had the 80 milligrams and those who didn't. And based on the various well-known, well-established safety data um, connected to, to, to zinc or lack of safety connected to zinc, the toxicity at that whole high levels, it's remarkable to me that this can be the standard of care. So what I say when I'm doing my, my training on this, whether it's at, you know, at grad level or whether it's to, to optometrists or ophthalmologists, is, you know, based on the evidence we have available today, based on ARIDS and based on the CREST studies, the best formulations are ones that have the three parts of the carotenoids. So the 10-10-2 formulation is, is key there. Um, but if you want to do an ARIDS-like formula, fine, make sure it has mesozeaxanthin, but make sure that it has low zinc. Yeah. So make it better, make it have mesozeaxanthin, and make it safer, make it have low zinc. That, that would be my strong recommendation. In Ireland, you, you made the comment that they don't even allow you to have 80 milligrams of zinc. So, so not, all. not at all. And, and so, you know, I've looked at, at some of the studies. When you say um, 25 milligrams of zinc, that you, in your mind, that's low zinc. And um, <laughs> when, I looked at, when I looked for um, some of the protocols that I've developed for macular degeneration, the, um, you know, there, the side effects of, if you just look at, at systemic side effects of 80 milligrams of zinc, it's like one in 28 patients mm-hmm. on that level will have a hospitalization from a UTI. Um, what else in your mind sticks out about that level of zinc that's going to be a problem? It's, it's at the worst case scenario, it's brain toxicity, hmm. which is hard to quantify. Hmm. But I, I'm not a zinc expert, but I do work with a zinc expert um, as part of our, our, our network. There's a network called the Bond Conference, the Bond, bondconference.org. And um, we just actually launched our, our new program for 2021 in Cambridge all our macular carotenoid scientists and optometrists participate as well so there's a zinc expert that speaks at that and um he he presented a lovely paper which he called um uh, zinc the essential toxin hmm. so like you you need element you need certain amounts of it and but can we use dye how much do we need but the worst case yeah to answer your question i would think um you know uh, uh, brain damage would be brain toxicity would be the problem because it's a metal at the end of the day yeah, yeah. you know um, so, so that's interesting, but, but the really good point is, and, and I think we've kind of spoke about it a bit on this talk, um, is that, you know, the opportunity for optometry, um, is, is, is let's deal with macular degeneration. I think it's a no brainer. If your patients have macular degeneration, you ask them to stop smoking, <laughs> you ask them to eat a balanced diet, stay healthy, control their, their blood pressure, you know, protect their eyes from sun like this. These are all common sense things. You know, it, and you, it's, it's, it's an absolutely prescription mm-hmm. to macular carotenoids. That's, I'm not, I, 
remember at the beginning I said to you from Ireland I was like let's do this with nutrition and I was anti-supplementation I've tried everything Chris I've tried smoothies I've tried creating eggs I've tried and I do think over our lifetime good nutrition is the, the answer by the way and we come back but when we get to the age of the problem that we have changes in the retina that are that are consistent with macular degeneration at any level the best advice and the safest advice from the doctor to the patient is to do this regardless of of, of the cost and so on because the cost of the disease progressing is something that you can't afford. So it's a no-brainer for me. Um, and what Professor Beattie and some of the other doctors that I work with, you know, they so much understand this area of research that, you know, they, 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 they put the supplement into their hand and say, this, you're going to have this for the rest of your life. Get used to it. It's just yeah. something they have to do. And, and what I think, and it's not that I'm, you know, trying to be over-promoting of the supplement industry here, but, but and this is important, we talk about this, there are supplements that have that validity of safety testing, of stability, of efficacy, and that, that this is a technology now for the eye, eye doctor to use to help their patient. Drawing on evidence-based science, draw, draw, and that this is the piece where optometry should feel comfortable. You know, because I get it. I get the feeling like, oh, I don't want to sell supplements or you know, maybe it works. Please like what I would say is there's so much good science being done to help this industry. It's now a responsibility, I feel, of the doctor to do what you've done. You can clearly talk about the science, to, to understand it and to try and use it with, with best intent and best effort for the patient. But we also have another risk because the danger of the doctor not taking control of this conversation with their patient is allowing the patient to maybe know a little bit about it Mm. And going and getting a supplement that, quite frankly, doesn't have any activity in it. Mm-hmm. And we've done a significant piece of work in Waterford, Ireland, where we've tested commercially available food supplements and all claiming everything you can imagine. And when we actually measure the carotenoid level, there's nothing there. And that's mm-hmm. because these carotenoids are hard to get right in terms of getting the consistency of the amounts that you want. You know, there's 20 milligrams. 22 milligrams seems to be the right number, the combination of the three carotenoids. That's where we, we did those response to get to that point. Um, but, you know... Well, so we, John, John, let yes. me stop you there because I, I want to kind of um, explore that a bit. The, and you mentioned this before, but when I look at the studies, it seems that um, you do, if you're just using the two, using lutein and zeaxanthine, then, um, then you have to wonder if somebody's getting absorption. But you really don't have to war- wonder about absorption if you're using a good quality supplement and, and the 1010 Why? So I have my theories on why that is, but why do you think that is? What, what does the research tell you why that's the case? Why is mesozeaxanthine going to make it so that, one, you can rebuild that volcano into a peak, mm-hmm. and two, that you can know that the patient is going to absorb what you're giving them okay. or it's going to be transmitted into the, to the pigment? Okay, let's deal with those questions in two parts. The first one is the stability and the absorption and the bioavailability piece. So, so basically, it's, it's actually not that complicated. So if you're taking a supplement that says it has, just, just say lutein, 10 milligrams of lutein. So the only way to be sure that it has 10 milligrams of lutein is that the company that provides it is an established company that has a, a quality source and that they provide it in a soft gel capsule to stop it from oxidizing. Because 90% of the supplements out there are not in a soft gel, they're in this powder. 
and in the capsule on the shelf at home in the store, they're degrading. Mm. That's what's a, a fact of science. So, so it's physically not in the capsule you're consuming. So that's why you're not going to get a result in that scenario. In a scenario where you deal with that and you provide a soft gel that, that where the carotenoids are protected from oil, you can get some very good results with lutein and zeaxanthin. And that where meso is not used. I've seen some patients do extremely well with lutein and zeaxanthin interventions that didn't have mesozeaxanthin. But the problem is, and some of this is still kind of hypothetical because mm-hmm. it's at a hypothesis stage, but let me explain it. In, in theory, what the biochemists believe is that when you consume the, the lutein, that the, the retina uh, convert, or it's converted at the retina into mesozeaxanthin, and that forms that central peak. And work from Utah suggests, from Paul Bernstein's lab, suggests that there's an enzyme involved in that process mm-hmm. where we can convert the lutein. Because biochemically, that's just simply changing a, a, a double bond in the end chain of the molecule. You know, there's basic molecules. Um, so just all you need to do to make mesozeaxanthin from lutein is one double bond and you have that molecule. You know, what that does to the molecule is it makes it a much more powerful antioxidant. And what that does to the molecule is um, it, it changes its orientation in terms of how it positions itself at the macula. So there's a functional win from it. You get a better antioxidant, you get um, a, a better filter of light. And we come back to those functions in a bit. But I want to answer your question clearly. In a situation however, that a patient, for whatever reason, is not able to convert that lutein into mesozeaxanthin. The point is that this, this 12% of the population that have these dips are likely those individuals that cannot do that conversion. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, and that was why we did that interventional study with the people with the volcanoes to kind of test that question in part. Now, this was made all the more complicated by, you know, there's some very good work done by Liz Johnson and Martin Noringer on the monkey studies. Um, and these famous monkey studies where basically they, they, they fed monkeys, um, two groups of monkeys, one group lutein only, and the other group um, zeaxanthin only. And postmortemly, when they looked at the retinas, the monkeys given lutein had lutein and mesozeaxanthin, whereas the monkeys given zeaxanthin just had zeaxanthin. So that kind of proves that the conversion that happens in a, in, in a normal way um, happens from the molecule lutein to create the mesozeaxanthin. And remember, mesozeaxanthin forms, not just forms the peak of the mountain, it forms one third of the entire mountain. So it's a significant part of this three piece of the jigsaw. So the problem is we don't know exactly how mesozeaxanthin is created um, from lutein in the eye. And we haven't identified the gene or the, the deficiency in whatever enzyme that's connected to that issue. But, but what we've been able to do is bypass that and show that when you supplement with the combination, when mesozeaxanthin is part of the intervention, you will rebuild the pigment centrally and across the profile. And sometimes when I give this presentation, um, you know, people that kind of promote zeaxanthin say to me, well, why didn't you do a mesozeaxanthin only experiment? My answer to that is why would I want to do that? Mm. at this stage when, when we've demonstrated the efficacy of the three parts of the pigment. My goal as a scientist is to address my research question with best chance of having a result. And all evidence has pushed me towards the combination of three, these three carotenoids. And you know, Chris, so, this has been so quite the question, sorry, sorry, John, but I, the question yeah. that they're trying to get you to, to answer is that 
mesozeaxanthine should have an effect all by itself. And if you can't prove that it has effect all by itself, then, then you can't know what the impact is of adding it. Is that what they're trying to get you to go down the, the path of? I, I think I, in, in part, but I will, I will counter that by saying in, in, the, in the central dip study, the atypical, uh, all these papers are on my website, by the way. Um, in, in that study, we did have a high mesozeaxanthin group and it was the mesozeaxanthin had a much better result than the lutein. If, if people look at that data. Um, the other thing I will say is, going back to those monkey studies, because this is really important. We've been testing the, the, the primary ingredients that were used in those studies. So when you get lutein from the marigold plant, um, what I need to tell your listeners is that you actually also get zeaxanthin and mesozeaxanthin. It's just part of the deal. Mm. Okay. Now the amount of mesozeaxanthin that's there is is in some cases very, 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 very small. But unfortunately for me, this and I wrote a very provocative uh, review paper, um, which to all my friends, you know, and my scientific colleagues who I who I respect and have so much time for, it was a very difficult time for me because I was challenging some of their work mm. and they were challenging my work. But it was very, it was very, it was professional in how we did that, and I really um, brought into question based on the new science where in our lab we could look at the lutein they use and say, well, actually, it does have some measles. So you can't conclude that mm. the measles is antin that you measured in the monkey retinas uh, was found because of this magic conversion has happened in the eye. And you know how I found that out? By mistake. I, I had this experiment where I was supplementing with lutein only. And when we looked at the bloods of the patients, which were on this, this, this lutein, um, they all had measles is antin in their blood. And I thought that the researchers had mixed up the interventions mm. and something wrong. And I, I got them to redo all the analysis and got the same result again. So in summary, um, I, I think that, you know, we need to kind of, there, there should never be, in my view, um, in this industry, a situation where one company says that zeaxanthin is better or mesozeaxanthin or you know, the macula believes all three of them are important. And I think that's the starting point. Um, and I think we have to draw on the, the body of evidence that has, you know, elegantly shown and demonstrated how these compounds are, are, are A, deficient. That's, that's what's really unusual about these. You know, the healthy marathon runner that, that, that eats the fruits and vegetables, I can still make them much better with good mm-hmm. supplementation. That is interesting. Isn't that it makes, interesting? It makes me wonder if, if it's just part of the, the um, evolutional biology that, you know, human beings were built to live for 40 years. And you know, Honestly, Chris, if you read some of my review papers, I speak about it, hmm. you know, from a Darwinian perspective. Absolutely that. As a, as a colleague of mine said in a lecture, we don't have the good grace to die anymore. Right. Um, so... Right. so you know, and you know what? There's a lot. There's there's a lot more of us around now, um, and a lot. The older elderly population is far greater than it ever was, and it's going even with this pandemic. Okay, it's going to be impacted. But if we want to have celebrate aging, and I certainly do, I want to see my parents get old. But I want to see them have their function when mm-hmm. they're old. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you're right. We we're we're, we're medicine and science is allowing us to live longer than we should. So we need to behave differently. And this is why I'm now very comfortable with a, with a directive that supplementation is essential. 
if we are going to protect our retinas and protect our brains into the future. And I, I, you know, I do a lot of work actually lobbying with government and I have a project, a major project underway at the moment with the dairy industry in Ireland, where we're trying to um, optimize uh, dairy products with these nutrients. So when my daughter, her penny is having her, her cereal in the morning that I know she's in addition to having her cereal and enjoying her food, she's getting uh, carotenoids. And, um, and it, so we have to start much earlier. Nature starts at the beginning. Nature starts when a mother's pregnant. The mother becomes deficient in carotenoids because the baby is already starting to take all the goodness. When a mother breastfeeds, the first three, three days of, of the breast milk is this beautiful yellow color. That's carotenoids. That's, that's what mm. we're talking about. And, it, and, and, you know, we talk about, so what do these carotenoids do? They help with, uh, you know, reducing oxidative stress at the retina. Oxidative stress is three times the amount in an infant baby than it did in a 50-year-old male or female. So mm. the role from these nutrients has to be from the cradle to the grave. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the one thing I push optometry to think about a little bit different is do what you do in AMD. Do what you do with protecting the retina. That's all sensible and, and logical, and that, that's a starting point. But the industry I've seen by going to all these conferences over the vision expos and everything that I, I, I go to from time to time, I'm amazed by the amount of like um, discussion around blue light and and lenses and mm. should we do well? Wow. But yet there's no real understanding in this industry about the most natural and beautiful and exquisite and customized optical filter that you have in your eye. And that's your macular pigment. Mm. And what's, what's, what's a, we have to realize that blue light is really important for our vision. You know that I know that, it, you know, our circadian rhythm, rhythm, you know, it, our mood, it, you know, our retinas, our peripheral retinas crave blue light. So that's why I wrote this other article for retinal ophthalmology where I said, don't put in blue light filtering intraocular lenses and mm. cat- type of cataract surgery. The evidence that I look at, the data I look at says that's, that's a bad thing to do. Um, do I have an issue with wearing blue light filtering glasses or lenses? No, that's fine from a performance point of view and from a time-to-time perspective. But really, the, you know, the issue with blue light and the macula is that we've no blue photoreceptor cones and that's why we have all these visual disturbances and visual provinces and mm-hmm. visual inadequacies and that's why this research area should be so important for optometry because you have a natural way and a safe way to enhance a filter in the back of your eye that's going to do right by this blue light issue that you have yeah no i think that's i think that's great i think um i, I would i would speculate that the reason there's so much surrounding glasses and blue light is because historically even though you know many of my colleagues and and my practices are drastically different than they were 40 years ago um, even 10 15 years ago historically the profession is still a profession of um, kind of bread and butter prescribing glasses and contact lenses and so I think that's why you'll see the kind of groundswell of of people kind of gravitating to blue light lenses is because it's familiar to them as opposed to like supplementation, writing prescriptions, oral prescriptions, topical medications. It exists in our profession. We're very well trained for it, but it's not sort of the historical aspect of, of the profession. So that's just my thoughts on why that's the case, but I think you're right. Let me ask you one last question because I want to be respectful of your time. Um, this, this debate on, so we brought up zinc. We talked about zinc before. 
Um, what is your thought on uh, Chu's data and Awa's data and they're kind of going back and forth between uh, the genetics the genetic and yes. Okay, so my 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 initial response to the and and by the way the the energy that this got in the US was far greater <laughs> crazy. Than, than anything it deserved and you know let, let's just be honest with each other here. I, I my feeling is that every industry likes to try and promote what it can offer to that industry. So the genetic testing company likes to say it's really essential that we do genetic testing. If you don't and and well, unfortunately for me, that whole narrative confused the simplicity of a simple nutritional pigment at the back of the eye. And that's why my default position is the Macu Health, the three carotenoids do that and you're good. And even for AMD, by the way, that's my starting point. Um, in terms of the, I don't need to do a genetic test if I'm looking at a retina that has retinal changes to know that I need to supplement with safe nutrition. If I'm uncomfortable about the genetics, I would definitely just default to the three carotenoids and stay true to that. I'm always cautious when a study which was designed and powered to do something gets chopped up in some way to show something else. Hmm. So if I was an optometrist and I did some really good optometrists I know that, 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 that you know, and I have to compliment them that they, they buy into kind of the technologies that become available and genetic testing being one of that. So these people must be complimented and, and not criticized for doing it. But I would try not allow genetic testing confuse where the peer-reviewed science has, has, has kind of guided. And, you know, my, my, I would be on the, on the side of um, first do no harm, as I said, and, and hence why my default is to this triple carotenoid interval. My mother has macular degeneration. Mm -hmm. She doesn't take an ARIDS-like formula. She takes MacuHealth and MacuHealth only. Um, and she has done, by the way, since 2006. Mm -hmm. Two things I got her to do. She was a cigarette smoker. And I told her I'd never visit her again if she didn't stop smoking cigarettes. That happened in 2006. So she did that. And she's been taking MacuHealth every day since then. Her retinas are, are fantastic at mm -hmm. the moment. Thank God. Um, I haven't really answered your question, but I have my I have my caution on it about you know this whole kind of story in terms of where it's been driven from in terms mm -hmm. of the, the need to do genetic testing and I, I would I would say to the listeners that people that are kind of confused by the whole zinc and the genetics and try and keep this whole thing. There's enough going on in your clinic. There's enough going on with your patient to 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 overcomplicate this. And, and that's why the message should be, what I, would, what I would recommend one does is that have, do what you do, have the conversation with your patient, try to give good health advice, good nutrition advice. If you can, and I think the future will have to allow optometry do contrast testing, contrast sensitivity. It's just such a valuable measure of mm. vision. It'll correlate with how your patient feels. It will show you how they improve if you, you do a carotenoid intervention and lifestyle optimization. You'll be able to measure it with contrast sensitivity. Um, but if I was in, in clinic situation, I wouldn't be doing genetic testing. I'd be, my rule would be if people have macular degeneration, if, if the retinal specialist is insisting on an ARIDS form, that's fine. Make sure it's low zinc, make sure it has meso, okay? But, but really, 
for everybody else, you don't need to do genetic testing. Because here's the thing, Chris, whether you have the good genes or the bad genes, you can still develop macular degeneration. Right, right. Okay, so there's wiggle room. The wiggle room is about our lifestyle and our nutritional optimization. And, 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 and to conclude, isn't it amazing that we're now empowered with food technology that's not just a blanket advice to our patients, eat well, eat carrots, eat spinach. Yeah. You know, no, that's bad advice. Now it's take these three nutrients that scientists have identified, have purified, have sourced, have put in a capsule for you to give to your patient. And, and, and you know what's remarkable? Is that your industry has validated our science. Hmm. Isn't, that, isn't that wonderful that I get to be alive to see that happen? Right. Because the people that have, have, have championed this, and the US is a champion, U.S. optometry is a champion here. You're an example to the rest of the world, and I truly believe that, mm. because you've done it, and you're prepared to make a decision. We spoke at the beginning today about you know, COVID and how it's forced people to make decisions. You, know, you have made decisions, and, and the doctors that have led with this, you know, their practice have done great because their patients have done great. Correct. And I, th- I think that's just, just so valuable. Um, and and you know, the other thing to say, and we won't have time to go into it today, but I can... I know your listeners can't see me, but look, I'll show you the paper I'm reading at the moment. Can you see that? Yes. Okay. What does that say? Functions and actions of retinoids and carotenoids building on vision of James Allen Olson. Yeah. So we're looking at, and look at the title there, this title here. Uh, a little closer. Sorry. Carotenoid action on the immune response. Yep. Okay. Right. So the point is that like my, what I've been allowed to do because I've had time to do it and I've had I've had budget to do it. I've been allowed to work in the retina and vision, and now we're doing a lot with Alzheimer's and brain, and we won't go into that today. But these carotenoids are important throughout our body. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in this time where COVID is, is, is attacking the vulnerable and the people that are, are, are sick and the elderly population and people with, you know, nutritional profiles that are suboptimal, that's basically the people that are really under pressure. Yeah, yeah. You know, from, my, from a selfish perspective, I'm so happy that my mother and father are full of carotenoids because, <laughs> you know, genuinely it gives me a lot of comfort um, because these, these are very special antioxidant pigments and they're throughout our body. They're in our skin, you know, they're in our brain, they're anywhere we fat, which, as you know, is all over our body. So they're doing a lot of really good things for us. And I think to end, I'll say it's remarkable that this industry has access to a time where scientists have identified a deficiency in a food compound that we've been able to solve. Yeah. Amen. John Nolan, thanks for being on. I, I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And I wish you and your family and, and I wish all the doctors across the US, you know, um, all the safeness and health in the world. And, and, you know, maybe, you know, the supplements and the things that they've learned and understanding about the role this for the patient can be something they use this time to think about you know um, and how it can help, yeah. help patients. I think it's it's, some, it's it's a way to adapt and to adjust and I wish you all the very best yeah you too I hope everything goes well with your family and everybody stays safe yeah God Appreciate bless it. Thank, thank you you too thank you